Well, welcome, Journey. If you're watching online, welcome to those of you watching online. And by the way, online, you can participate. You can, uh, giving online, there's a place that, that you can choose. It says BGMC in your online giving, and you can help with BGMC that way. Um, in the room, are you guys all right? Doing okay? It's great to see you. Glad you're here this morning. Welcome. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Ken, and I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning. I want to welcome a couple of my friends who were part of starting Journey Church to begin with. They were part of uh, the, the whole, when we were like 30 people, this couple was so integral, and there's others who have been so vital along the way as well, but, uh, and then several years ago, they had to move to Iowa to be with their family, and so we've been so grateful to have them here this week, and this is Tom and Carol Clemens all the way in the back. Would everybody give a great big enthusiastic welcome to Tom and Carol? We love you guys. So great to have you guys here this weekend. And uh, man, they were, they, they were here when I was like, why would anybody go to this church? <laughs> I wouldn't go to this church if I wasn't the pastor of this church. And uh, we've had so many faithful people along the years that have just, uh, that, you know, sometimes if you're newer to Journey, you kind of walk in and it just seems like this all just kind of it happened because of a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice along the way. And so uh, for those of you who are long-termers, we love you. We appreciate you. If you're new, we love you. We're this is an adventure. We're on a ride, and uh, we're seeing God's kingdom expand uh, locally, across the street, and around the world um, through just our faithfulness to the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to do a few things. First of all, in the pocket of the chair in front of you is a connection card, and we're going to ask everybody to grab one of those connection cards. If you are here every week, you know, just grab that card, and you can put your first and last name on there, and always appreciate it when you do that. If you've never filled out one of these cards before, uh, whatever information you feel comfortable sharing, we just appreciate you doing that, and if you share your address, we have something we want to send you, and then once, once you fill that out, just hold on to that card, and at the end of the service, when we dismiss you, we'll have some good-looking people at the back doors with white buckets, and you could just stick the cards in those buckets, and uh, that just helps us so much. There's some places on there, my next step, we'll talk a little bit about some of that uh, later on in the service. Um, this Wednesday is the first Wednesday of August. I hate to tell you that. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but July is almost done. We're almost in August. I apologize to all the students in this room because that's horrible. Um, and uh, so on the first Wednesday of every month, we have something called First Wednesday Prayer, and the worship center will be open from 11 a.m. to noon, and then from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., and we're all, we have prayer every Wednesday from 11 a.m. to noon. You're always welcome to be a part of that, um, but these are just prayer gatherings where we're praying for our world, we're praying for our nation, we're praying for our community, and we're praying for our church and asking God to pour out His Holy Spirit in just an extra way, because we need the Spirit of God, don't we? Our nation, our world, our families need the Spirit of God to be poured out in a unique way. We need another great awakening, and that's what we're praying for is, God, would you just send another revival that would be undeniable, that would point people not to a church, not to a pastor or a denomination, but point people to Jesus, because that's who they really need. At the end of the day, people don't need a church, they need Jesus and the church is us. The church is us gathering together saying we're a bunch of knuckleheads trying to follow Jesus the best that we can. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. 
And uh, so there's that. Um, and then we want to let you know that on Saturday, August 19th, we're having our annual shoe giveaway. And this is a time where we will serve several hundred students right here in our community who are in need of a pair of shoes before uh, school begins. And so you can help us in several ways. If you can volunteer that morning, the, uh, the morning of the 19th, or if you can volunteer that Friday night before for setup, uh, you can go to our website, explorejourney.org, and go to events, or you can go to the church center app and go to events and you can sign up to be a part of that. Second, if you can bring a pair of shoes, we're looking specifically for athletic tennis shoes. The schools have asked us, please, please don't give kids flip-flops and sandals and high heels. That's just not that's not good. They need athletic tennis shoes. So if you can help us out with that, or if you don't want to do that, we have people in our church who have the gift of shopping and it's a spiritual gift. It's, it's in First Hezekiah. You'll find it in there. And uh, if, you, if you just want to donate money, we have people who seriously, they find the deals and they can multiply your money and buy shoes with that. So that's another way to help out. Well, we are in a series this summer, and it's actually going to go uh, through at least the end of September, where the series is called Think Like Jesus. Think Like Jesus. And the idea is that we don't spend enough time thinking about what we think about. And yet our thoughts are so powerful and they're so important because our thinking drives our behavior. It drives our reactions. It drives our actions, right? Our thoughts are so powerful. But what, what or who is shaping our thoughts? And sometimes, I mean, most of the times our thoughts are just, we're in auto drive, right? And thank God for that because I don't want to have to think about every single detail of my life. But we just do, have you ever driven, you know, driven from, from work and you get home and you're like, I don't even remember I drive, like, I mean, it's just autopilot, right? I mean, for good, bad, ugly, whatever. And, and so sometimes we have thoughts. We're not even paying attention to our thoughts, but our thoughts are shaped by our families of origin. Our thoughts are shaped by teachers. Our thoughts are shaped by entertainment, by culture, by YouTube videos. And, and as followers of Jesus, if you're here in this room or you're watching online and you're a follower of Jesus, our thoughts as followers of Jesus are to be shaped by the word of God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I, when I hear that, I think of like pouring concrete into a form. He says, don't, don't conform to just a pattern of this world, just the way that everybody else goes, everybody else thinks, everybody else acts. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind right like our thoughts matter what we think about it so in in trying to as followers of Jesus I want to think like Jesus I want to act like Jesus I don't want to take my cues from culture or politics or, or whatever I want I want to think the way Jesus wants me to think and the best way we know how is to, is to go to the word of God and so what we're doing this summer is we're looking at the sermon on the mount which is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus in scripture and it starts in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes through Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. And, and, and we're just going through this kind of paragraph by paragraph. You can read the whole sermon, even if you're not a good reader. I mean, really good readers can read it in about 15 minutes. Even if you struggle, you could read it in about 30 minutes. You could read the entire sermon. And so some of you guys are going, well, why is this taking you all summer? Because what Jesus says is so rich and so powerful that we just want to kind of take it a paragraph at a time just to chew on it and go, God, renew my mind with these, with these words straight from the mouth of Jesus. 
Help me to think different. Help me to not go along with the ways of this world. And so, so we're, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and I encourage you in your Bibles to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and, and to be reading with me. And, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at a pivotal verse where Jesus says something so powerful. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, but I warn you, and by the way, if Jesus says, I warn you, you better pay attention, right? Like Jesus, I warn you, pay attention, listen up. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we all heard that, and maybe you've heard that before. Maybe this isn't new to you, and, and, and we just go, oh, that's a nice verse, Jesus. But if you were part of that original audience 2,000 years ago, the disciples and the followers of Jesus that were listening to him speak, you would have gasped because there's no way. In their minds 2,000 years ago, looking at the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they looked at the, this crowd, this just normal, ordinary, working-class people would look at the religious leaders and they would go, there's no way my righteousness could ever surpass the righteousness of these teachers of the law, of these religious leaders. Like, there's no way. Like, Jesus, you want, I can't do that. That's not possible. And I think really the whole essence of the Sermon on the Mount is, yeah, you can't. <laughs> I think there's a whole lot of the Sermon on the Mount that we, we, we go, oh, man, how can I do Some of the things we're going to talk about today, some of you are going to go, oh, there's no hope. But here's the thing. Jesus recognizes that. He recognizes your righteousness can't surpass it. My righteousness can't. My righteousness, according to prophet Isaiah, is like filthy rags, disgusting rags. I need the righteousness of Jesus. Now here's the other part of the problem, is that the righteousness of the religious leaders and the teachers of the law was really all about making yourself right by doing good things, by not doing bad things. And, and this is what Jesus means when he's talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees. They had external morality down. In other words, if you looked at them, they didn't smoke, they didn't chew, they didn't go with girls who do. Right? I mean, they, you, to look at them, they look like they had it down. I mean, they, they walk with this righteous swagger, and they talk, ha, like, ha, like, glory, ha. Like they, I mean, they, they had the, righteous, the external righteousness, like, down. But Jesus says, you dig a little deeper and start looking into their heart and their motivations. And it's not as righteous as you think it is. Jesus says obeying all the rules is not enough. And then he goes on to prove his point with several examples. Now, two weeks ago, Beth Wilson just did a fantastic job of unpacking the first example that Jesus gave. And this was in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And remember, if you weren't here, basically Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And I'm telling you that if you have anger toward person, you've essentially murdered them. What is Jesus saying? Don't be smug. Don't think that you're good to go with God because you've never murdered anybody. Jesus says, I tell you that it's just as bad to have absolute disdain and disgust toward another person, right? And if you weren't here for that or if you've already forgotten that sermon, you've got to go back and watch it. The, the beach balls, how many times have we thought about that example that, that was so powerful, so rich. See, even with all the good actions that we bring to the table, we are still sin-stained and sin-covered. We are still broken. Every one of us in this room needs to be restored, not only because of, of the 
the exterior bad things that we do, but we need to be, we need to be cleansed of the, 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 the sin that lurks deep down inside of us in our hearts and minds. And so Jesus now goes on with a couple more examples. So the, the first example is what we talked about two weeks ago with you said it heard, do not murder, I say if you have anger. We're going to go on to the next one, and I'm just going to warn you, these are, you're not going to walk out of this room going, that was the most uplifting sermon ever. Okay, it's about to get serious. This is going to be a serious sermon, okay? So here's the next example that he gives, and this is in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 27. And this is real, by the way. This is real. He says in verse 27, this is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus isn't talking here about normal, involuntary attraction. It's not wrong to admire someone who's beautiful. What Jesus is getting at is the second or the third gaze that now begins to objectify and fantasize about this person that you're not married to. Now, ultimately... You don't need your pastor to get up here and give a nuanced definition of what Jesus is talking about here because you get it. When Jesus talks about looking at someone with lust in your heart, you understand what that means. And most of us in this room understand that means that, that, that we're guilty. But here's why this is so serious because sexual sin, the kind that results in damage and death, is always preceded by sexual fantasy. It always starts with a thought. And many people in this room, and I don't, this isn't because I'm a prophet, just statistically speaking, the statistics are there are a number of people in this room who struggle with lust. And I don't just mean like, like you're driving down the road and just look, oh, she's hot. I'm talking about a lust that has, has you in its grip, and you are addicted to porn, and you're addicted to other sexual issues. And maybe for you, you ask, well, is there hope for me? What do you do? First and foremost, you go to your loving Heavenly Father who already knows that you're stuck. He already knows the guilt. He already knows the shame, and He loves you. And you go to Him, and you confess your sin to God, and you ask Him to give you a new heart and to change your thinking through His Word. You go to God, but you also need to take action. In fact, look at what Jesus says next, the very next thing that he says, and this is going to be really popular, by the way. Verse 29, Jesus, these aren't my words. I'm literally reading from Scripture. I hope you are too, so you can check me. Verse 29, Jesus says, So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And, and it goes on. We're not done. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now to be clear, everybody listen to me. Jesus is not actually advocating for self-mutilation here. 
He's using something that he uses often in his teaching, a concept called hyperbole. He's using hyperbole to convey that if you need to do something drastic, if you are so bound by lust, do something drastic, just do it. Don't excuse your lust away by thinking, well, I'm just a red-blooded American man, and that's what men do. We look at porn. That's what men do. I'll never change. It's who I am. This is how I, I'm wired. I'm a man. Now, that's a, that's a masculinity that has been perpetrated through culture, and that's not what manliness means. And you don't have to be bound to it. And by the way, this lust issue is not just a man thing, by the way. All the research is showing when an issue of pornography, pornography is increasingly a female issue as well. Jesus is saying, if you need to do something drastic, drastic, do it. And a lot of us in this room need to hear Jesus' words and start taking extreme measures. No more second looks. Not just in person, but on your phone, on YouTube, on whatever movies you're watching or websites you're going to. What, what, what would be a drastic move? A drastic move would be going to a spiritual leader. It doesn't have to be me. In fact, I don't want 100 conversations this week about this, but find somebody that's a few steps ahead of you spiritually and just say, hey, can we talk? And bring into light that which is in the dark. That's a great way to start. A drastic measure might be finding a group of men to meet with if you're a man, a group of women to meet with if you're a woman. We have some great men's groups that meet at our church. We have a Monday night group, a Tuesday night group. We have a Wednesday morning group, all, all different men's groups. We have some great women's groups that are meeting. And so find a group of people. That you, and in that group, you don't need to tell the whole group. You don't need to go in your first time. You don't know any of these guys and go, hey, I'm a porn addict. But go to the group and start. You'll find that there's people in that group that you can trust, that you can bring something from the dark and bring it into the light. Maybe for you, drastic measures means going to a Bible-based Christian counselor and sitting down and saying, I have an addiction. Whether it's porn or some other sexual addiction, I need help. Maybe, maybe you need to take a course online through Pure Life Ministries. It's an excellent organization. You'll have to pay a little bit of money. You, you'll have to pay a little money to go to counseling. Here's it. If you've been around Journey, you know that I'm not in favor of debt. But I would tell you, if you have to go into debt for counseling, do it. It's that important. Your marriage is that important. Your relationships are that important. PureLifeMinistries.org. Take Jesus' words seriously. So that's an up uh, example, right? Lust. <laughs> wow, so glad we got to hear about that this morning. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, let's go on to verse 31. Here's a second example. Divorce. <laughs> you have heard the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Okay, before we go further, I've got to acknowledge divorce hits close to home. This is not a perfect church. If you're looking for a perfect church, you need to go somewhere else because we are not a perfect church. 
And I would tell you in this church this morning, just statistically speaking, a lot of people in this room have been divorced. Divorce hits pretty much everybody in this room. Maybe your parents have been divorced. Maybe you're old enough that you have kids who have been divorced or are going through divorce. Maybe you have a close friend who's going through a divorce or their parents are going through a divorce. Divorce has probably influenced pretty much everybody in this room. And I know that for many of you, your divorce was one of the most painful times in your life. And, and if you could have avoided it, you would have avoided it. It's just something that it is what it is. In Jesus' time, a flippant attitude toward marriage was starting to develop, an attitude that I would say is pervasive today, 2,000 years later. But in Jesus' day, it was, it was this flippant attitude. Rabbis were starting to define like how, rabbis, by the way, were teachers of the religious law. And, and so they were, they were developing ideas of, of when somebody could give a divorce and when they couldn't. And there was a rabbi during Jesus' time, we actually have his writings, his writings are still preserved, and uh, who, who would say that if, if your wife burned your food, that you could divorce her. That was, that was enough merit to, to, to divorce her. Can you imagine no pressure there, right? <laughs> now, what, what was this getting? I mean, this was even in Jesus' time. What was developing was something that I would call, and, and others would call, a consumer relationship. What is a consumer relationship? A consumer relationship is where you figure out what you need and who or what can best meet that need. That's a consumer relationship. I have a consumer relationship with a gas station. It's convenient to me, it has pretty good prices, and so I go to that gas station. But as soon as there's a gas station that is more convenient, closer, has better gas prices, guess what? I'm going to that other gas station. It's good to have a consumer relationship with your gas station, right? But I can't have that kind of relationship. Let me, let me even change it outside of marriage for a few minutes. I can't have that kind of relationship with my kids. First service, my youngest was sitting right here in the middle, front row. She's a good girl, right? She's sitting right there in front. What, can you imagine a scenario, this would never happen, but can you imagine a scenario that I go to my youngest, I go to Kara, and I say, Kara, I want you to know something. Um, Kara, this isn't working out. Like, I want you to know, Kara, it's, it's not you, it's me. I've been hanging out with some of the other neighbor kids, and they're just more exciting. Like, they do more stuff. Um, they're better at Mario Kart, like, and so Kara, again, it's not you, it's me, but I, I'm choosing them. Now, that would never happen, right? No parent in here would do that because you know that your relationship with your child is not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship. I'm not bound to you because of what you do for me. I'm bound to you because we're family now. And Kara, Kara could, and I tell her all this, I love you no matter what, and I will always love you no matter what. You can't make me love you more. I will love you no matter what. You murder somebody, and I will be in prison as much as I can visiting you. I hope she doesn't murder anybody. <laughs> right? But I'm her dad, and I will always be her dad. And it doesn't matter what she does. I'm going to love her. I'm going to stick by her. Okay, so let me ask you this question, and I know it's not a perfect example, but what kind of relationship is marriage supposed to be more like? A consumer relationship or that covenant relationship like I have with my daughter? If you get divorced because it's just not working or because your desires have changed 
or because they annoy you or because they're just not doing it for you anymore or we argue too much. That's a consumer relationship. According to Jesus, marriage is a covenant in effect until death do you part. In fact, later in the same gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and I know you've got a ton of questions. We're going to get to your questions in just a minute, okay? Because I could just feel it in the room like, but we're going to get there. Later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells us a little bit more about divorce. In this case, some Pharisees have come to him with some gotcha questions. They're trying to get him to answer in a way that would turn him against the crowds. And this is what Jesus says here. And I'm not going into the whole thing, so if you want to read it later, I encourage you to. But in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 4, Jesus responds, Haven't you read the scripture? They record, the scriptures record, that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Verse 7, so this is the response of the Pharisees. Then why did did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked. Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. So Jesus' response is, no, it's not okay for a man to divorce his wife just for any cause. And then he quotes Genesis 2 from the very beginning and, and talks about God's original intent. We know in Malachi that God hates divorce, but there's times where divorce is it's a necessary thing, right? But it's not God's original intent. Jesus points out that marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong covenant, a union lasting until death, that no man or woman should ever dare separate themselves from a union that God established. But here's the question that you're like, okay, but here's the question you want to ask. If that's the case, is divorce ever okay? Is it ever okay to divorce, right? I mean, that's a question. There's other questions. We'll get to those as well. But is it ever okay to divorce? And I would say there's one exception we've already seen in both passages in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. In each of those occasions, Jesus has given an exception, right? In Matthew 5, 32, to reiterate back what we read originally, he says, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, right? So Jesus says that the exception is in the case of adultery, Now, years later, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the Apostle Paul would come on the scene, the Apostle Paul would minister, and and the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would add another exception. The Apostle Paul would say in in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, that a second exception would be if you have been deserted, if you have been deserted by an unbelieving spouse. So why would those be the exceptions? Because both adultery and desertion kill the covenant. When your spouse unites themselves to someone else sexually, they have destroyed the one flesh covenant with you. And if your spouse leaves you and divorces you, they have killed the covenant and you are free to remarry. In both cases, God calls us to peace. Okay, but here's another question. Some of you would ask this, and I've been asked this question personally 
dozens of times. Dozens of times. What if there was no adultery, but my spouse has been abusive, or maybe they've been involved in some illegal activity, they refuse to stop, and they're putting our family at risk? And my response is always consistent. First, you need to get yourself out of that situation immediately. If you are married to someone who is putting you or your kids in danger, you need to get out. Does everybody in this room hear me? <laughs> you need to get out. We will help you. Talk to me, talk to one, Pastor Aaron, talk to one of our ministry leaders, our board members. We will help you. We are committed to your safety. You need to get out. Uh, if, if, you don't, if you don't feel safe talking to us, there's 800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, 800-799-SAFE. You need to call that immediately. You need to call Liberty Center here in Fremont, which is Sandusky County's homeless shelter. They have a domestic violence advocate. If you live in a different county, you can call your prosecutor's office anonymously, and you can tell them that you're in a situation. They have domestic violence advocates who will walk along with you. They won't tell you what to do. They won't force you to do something that you don't want to do, but they will walk with you, and they will help you, and it's so important. If you're in a dangerous situation or your kids are in a dangerous situation, get out. As far as whether divorce is an option, I would argue, and we could spend a lot of time with this, but I'm going to give you just kind of the, the low threshold of this. I would argue that the logic of Paul's and Jesus' exceptions also allow for a divorce when a spouse is putting you or your kids in danger. In the same way that adultery or abandonment have killed the covenant, living in an abusive way does as well. And by the logic of 1 Corinthians 7.15, you are no longer bound. Now hear me. This does not mean that they've gotten annoying, that they've changed, that they're just not doing it for me, that they're a bad cook, that we argue a lot. No, that's not what that's talking about. I would encourage you to do this under the close advisement of a spiritual leader, a pastor, a Bible-based Christian counselor. Don't do this on, on your own. And I would encourage you to bring someone who is mature into this conversation as early as possible. So many times as a pastor, I've had people call me, and they've been in this for a year, longer than a year. And they'll call me, and it'll be like 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. They'll be like, can I talk to you tonight? Be like, well, my daughter kind of has a band concert tonight. Well, if you can't fix me tonight, then I think my, my marriage is, is done. We're done. <laughs> like, well, it's taking you a lot longer to mess up your marriage. Bring somebody in as, as quickly as you can. Talk to somebody. Bring us in early. Here's the big point I want you to get. From the beginning, God established marriage as a covenant, not as a consumer relationship. And this is the best example that, that I can think of when it comes, comes to divorce. Uh, in the physical world, a, a doctor, a physician, there are times where a physician will understand that because of what's going on in a person's body, that an amputation is necessary, amputation of a leg or an arm. There are times, we, we probably all know of situations where an amputation actually saved somebody's body, Right? But any physician who just goes around prescribing amputations, right? oh, you got a cold? <laughs> they would lose their license 
and, and they would probably be prosecuted, right? I think, I think sometimes because of the, the, we go, oh, well, divorce is, no, divorce should be thought of as an amputation. There are situations where it's necessary, but it's not something that we should be pursuing. God hates divorce. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, he allows for it, but it's not his original intent. As we get, as we get ready to close, here's, here's my concern in talking about this issue. We're willing to talk about hard issues at Journey. But here's, here's my concern is the enemy likes to take, in fact, this is found in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when Jesus is in the, in the wilderness being tempted. And the enemy actually, in one situation, he actually tempts Jesus by taking Scripture and twisting it and trying to get it to mean something that it doesn't mean, right? Here's my concern when we talk about an issue like this, is that someone would walk out of this room this morning and what they would hear from this whole sermon is there's no hope for you. God could never love you because of lust, because of a porn addiction or a sexual addiction, because maybe you were at fault for your divorce. You were the one who was unfaithful. You were the one who left. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're just, you didn't understand. You didn't understand what the Bible had to say. And so, and so you divorced. And maybe the enemy would come at this point and just say, well, there's no hope for you. God, God doesn't love you. You could never make it into heaven. And I want to unequivocally say to every single person in this room, your heavenly father sees you and he loves you. He will be truthful with you. He will lead you to repentance. And if you're, if you've, if you're here and, and maybe you were at fault for any of these things or lust or whatever it was, can I just tell you, first things first, go to your heavenly father and say, I have sinned against you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if, we are, if, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Come to him. I messed things up. Maybe it was months ago, maybe it was years ago, maybe it was decades ago, but you've never confessed it to God. You've never repented for whatever role you had to play. Can I just tell you, go to your loving Heavenly Father. He knows. He's not shocked. He's not going, oh, you did? You go to him, you say, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? And God's answer is yes, when you do so with a repentant, contrite, broken heart. He won't despise you. You say, Ken, I, I need something more than that. There's one of my favorite conversations that Jesus ever has. This is found in John chapter four. I talk about it a lot at Journey, so if you've been around, forgive me. But Jesus is having a conversation that he should have never had. Culturally speaking, he should have never had this conversation. It was an absolute no-no. But he finds himself in a private conversation with a foreign woman who he's never met before. He starts having this conversation with her and they're kind of going back and forth and they're, they're talking about worship and all this stuff. And, and at one point in the conversation, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go get your husband to join us in this conversation? And he knows, he knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what's going on. This is in John 4, verse 17. The woman responds, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, because Jesus knows, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands. She must have been a horrible cook. 
For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. What I love about Jesus is this divorce thing wasn't a disqualifier for Jesus having a conversation, going out of his way to have a conversation with this woman. Five times divorced. It's almost as if Jesus went looking for her so 2,000 years later, whatever shame, condemnation, guilt, whatever is hanging over you, whatever lie the enemy is speaking to you, that, that we can look back at Scripture and say, no, we know that Jesus would go out of his way to speak to someone like that. He looked her in the eyes, he loved her, and he said, you know what, you've been going to an old, worn-out well trying to, to satisfy the thirst in your soul. And I'm here to tell you, I have rivers of living water available for you. I have the answer for you. Come to me. Look to me. I don't, I don't know what's going on in your head right now as we've talked about lust, as we've talked about divorce, but I want you to know there is hope. Would you just look at me for a second? There is hope. Your heavenly father isn't done with you. Turn to him. We sang the song earlier, and, and these words, I didn't know Carrie was going to be leading the song, and I'm married to her. I hear her playing it on the piano, but it just didn't click until this morning. Here were the words that we sang just a few minutes ago. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. The riches of your grace will always be enough. I think we sang that prophetically, that if you're here and you're saying, I messed up. I really messed things up. You can go to your heavenly father. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your grace will always be enough. He has grace for you. He has love for you. Divorce is not the disqualifier. Lust is not the disqualifier. Come to him with all of your brokenness. Come to him with your sin. Come to him with your powerlessness and say, Jesus, I can't. I don't have the answers, but I come to you because I know that you do. He loves you. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? Maybe you're here, and, and honestly, it might not even be divorce or lust, or it could be something completely different, honestly. But you're here this morning, and you, you've just realized, and it might not be from the service, maybe you even walked in here, and there's been things that have happened this week, or, and you've somehow come to an understanding of just the weightiness of your sin, the weightiness of your brokenness and helplessness. Something has happened this week or maybe through the course of this morning's sermon and you recognize, God, I don't have what it takes to be right with you. I need your forgiveness. I don't need religion. I don't need to be a member of a church. Jesus, I need you to rescue me and to save me. I need you to come and do inside of me what I can't do for myself. Would you forgive me? Maybe you've never come to Jesus and humbled yourself that way and asked Jesus to forgive you, to be the master and leader of your life. But this morning, there's a recognition that you need him. Let's ask you with your eyes closed, we're not gonna embarrass you. 
Baptism is where we go public. By the way, we had 18 people get baptized last Sunday night at our pool party, which is just bonkers, just awesome. Yeah, I should have mentioned that at the very beginning. I don't even think we told the first service that. Oh, well. With your eyes closed, if you're here and you say, I need Jesus to come into my life to lead me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you this morning. If you're watching online, you can just let us know in the comments there. Yeah, I see you over there. Who else? Anybody else? Raise it high enough that I can see you. Yeah, I see you over there. Yeah. Who else? Again, if you're watching online, just let us know in the comments or there's, depending on how you're watching, you might be able to click on something. Father, I pray for those who have raised their hands this morning. You see them, you love them. They are not distant from you. If you raise your hand, it, really all over this room, would you, just, would you just pray this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I've sinned against you. I've made a mess. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe Jesus was resurrected from the grave. He has the power to free me and forgive me. Come into my life. I give you control. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if you prayed that and you're meaning that this morning, I want you to know there is a celebration in heaven like you can't even imagine. You are so loved. If you would help us out before you leave at the bottom of your connection card, it says my next steps. And if you raised your hand, check that maybe you're starting a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's reaffirming a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to celebrate with you and come alongside you. Maybe there's other, other things that are, that are applicable to your life that you'd want to check on that card. You can let us know. We're going to continue the series next week. We're going we're gonna to talk about what is this whole thing where Jesus has turned the other cheek. Like what is that all about, right? Have you ever wondered that? We're going to continue next week in Matthew chapter 5 of thinking like Jesus. This week, uh, we'd love to have you pray with us on Wednesday for First Wednesday Prayer. And we just love you guys, appreciate you. Have a great week. May you know that you are so loved that your Father sees you and he loves you. God bless you guys. See you later.